Thanks for reading that full passage for us, Ed. Um, I know maybe some of you are wondering, you know, you've come back to church. Maybe this is your first time. It's like, I'm excited to be back to church. Well, this is a passage. Um, and it, it, it is. You know, I, uh, what I will say uh, probably again this morning is that every passage of Scripture is God's God-breathed revelation. Every passage, every word, every story. But I'll be the first to say that there are some stories in Scripture that are harder for me to sit with. They are harder for me to understand. But it's important for me to observe as I'm hearing them and receiving them, just to notice how, my, how I'm reacting and then to ask the questions of why am I reacting the way I am. And that's the cue to understand more and more of what God's saying through this. I also mentioned that we are going to be celebrating communion in response to this. Uh, for everyone at home, that might mean having elements. For any of you here who don't have elements and would like to participate, feel free to go to the back at any time to collect those things. Please pray with me as we um, just come before the word of the Lord and ask him to speak to us. God, we just pray again that you would be our hiding place, that you would be our protection when we find ourselves in the valley of trouble, and that you would surround us with songs of deliverance. Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak Speak to our hearts this morning and allow us to learn and hear you in the midst of what could be a difficult passage for many of us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This morning, I would like to introduce you to a man called Achan. A man called Achan, which we don't really know that much about, but as we get to know him a little bit, we're going to be asking some of the questions about who is this person that will help us understand him, but also understand how his story helps us understand our own. Because you have to ask as you look at a chapter like this, how many of these small choices that we make, how many of these small choices kind of lead to bigger ones? They lead to steps and steps that unfold into bigger and bigger mistakes, bigger and bigger errors, bigger and bigger harms that hurt us that hurt everyone around you, you ask as you look at something like this, who else knew what was happening? Who else knew what was happening? Who else was involved? I'd like to introduce you to Achan, who is a son of Carmi, who's a son of Zimri, and who's from the tribe of Judah, and you probably don't know all those things. The names kind of go over your head really quickly, but it's telling you his family What's the bigger family he's a part of and what's the tribe he's from? And I want to take you back not to where we re meet him in this chapter, but I want you to imagine with me what it was like when he actually crossed the Jordan. Chapters and chapters ago near the beginning of this book, he crossed the Jordan with his family and felt the dryness of the ground, that it was miraculously dry when he walked across. He saw God do that. And he probably joined with the other people in his tribe to actually get the stones together to this memorial they built. Every single tribe from Israel built together these stones that Kathy preached about some weeks ago. And they built this memorial reflecting of how they would remember this is what God has done. We're trusting him. We're following him in every step of the way because we believe he is bringing about peace in this new land he's giving us. And I want to take you to the moment before the walls of Jericho fell, where God proclaimed victory over everything. And 
he probably joined in in the shout. He probably did some of the walking. He also heard the special instructions. No, don't hurt the family of Rahab and her family. Don't, because they protected us. They believe in the power of God at work. And he also heard the instruction that if, that, that if you find any gold or silver, don't touch it. Stay away from what we'll talk about are the devoted things. Stay away from those things. Because if you do find the gold and silver, bring them to the treasury. Otherwise, have nothing to do with it because it will be your undoing. He heard those words. But even though he heard all those words, nothing prepared him for when he actually saw the beautiful robe. He saw it and it was beautiful. And he just saw it and immediately felt like he had to have it. It's only when he touched it, maybe he realized that, oh, no, that robe was covering over all this silver. All that silver was right there under the robe. Thirty, it's all these shekels of silver, and then there was this beautiful gold bar. What if I just take it? Would anyone know? Would God really know if I just take it? Maybe you've had moments like that where you've thought the same. Would anyone know if I just did this? Would it really matter? Does it really matter? Would it really hurt anyone? So before, as he's thinking this thought, it becomes less of should I? I have to. I have to take it. I need it. I don't just want it. I need it. It becomes this compulsory action where he takes it and he hides it. And then you can imagine what tent life might have been like for him and his family. He takes it and they put it at the center of his home. No one can hide it. Who does he get to bring it and get it back to his home? Who does he get to dig the hole under his tent? Who does he get to help him cover it up? This chapter doesn't tell us who was involved in everything, but it seems beyond the scope of just one man. And yet it's still the same desire, it's still the same pain, it's still the same evil that is destroying his heart and his family, and it destroys the way in which God's people are trusting him in this moment. And I'm just going to take you through the story a little bit because I want to just stay with Achan. Achan has done this deed and it, is, it has shaped his heart. He has curved inward. It is about what he wanted. He just saw the walls come down and instead of thinking, oh, that was, God's doing incredible things. Like, how can I improve my life? How can I have something better for me? And so he's done the deed. His heart's already been hit by this. Who knows who else? And then a few days go past, and then the God's people eventually go, and they're going to go to the next people, the next, the next place they need to go. So Joshua sends out a group of men to Ai is where we learn. You can read more about it in chapter 8 as well. And they go to Ai, and then they hear back. He hears a rumor going on, a rumor going on in the town. Things didn't go well. People are coming back. Something's wrong. There's trouble. People died. I, this is not what God said would happen. Why, why did this happen? And then he starts to have this doubt creep into his heart and mind. You don't think it was because of me. It's not because of the silver. It's not because of the robe. It's not because of the gold bar. That Surely that has nothing to do with me. But then he sees Joshua on his face, torn clothes, weeping and gnashing the elders, tearing their clothes, dust on their head. Something is really wrong. But he stays silent. He stays completely silent. And then he starts to hear the news that God's given Joshua instruction. He's look, he's going to go through the tribe. They're going to seek and they're asking people to come forward. He stays silent. 
And then, even after he chooses not to come forward that night, the next day, they go through each tribe, tribe by tribe, each family, family by family, till eventually they come to him. And he's still wondering this in his heart. Maybe it's someone else. Maybe someone else did something wrong. How would they know? Does it really matter? He hopes they find someone else. What we know in the story is it wasn't someone else. It was the choice he made. It was the choice that brought his family into this sin. And there are often times in Scripture when I look at this and they brush up against what, how I think the story should unfold. Because if I remember what the land is supposed to be, the land is supposed to be a promise a promise where all of God's people hear and helps us understand the promise that as we trust God and enter into his peace, we find rest. We've been thinking about all these promises throughout all this summer, different promises, promises of rescue, promises of victory, promises of rest, of strength, of courage. We know these promises. And so I think, how does this story connect with these promises? Well, those promises cannot be enjoyed or received if we, in one way or the other, are insistent on going about life in our own way, and of not dealing with sin, of not actually remaining faithful to the God of promise, who is giving these promises to us, or giving the promises to these people. So last week, looking at what happened to Jericho, if that is a testament of what obedience looks like, the people doing perhaps what looks a little ridiculous, going around Jericho, and then all of a sudden God giving them victory, that's obedience what we see here is complete disobedience. We see it's complete sin and the devastation that comes from it. The devastation that comes from it. We, we immediately see God's people here dealing with the same temptations of the people in the land. They were supposed to relieve the land of all of its destruction and pain, which was bound up in the people who were committed to other gods in other ways. So they needed to, God wanted to remove those people. Well, God's own people are facing the same struggle. <laughs> And it's very clear for me on a personal level to connect with the fact that I face the same struggle. I've been walking with Jesus for, for most of my life. And at the same time, I know that I am tempted by the robe. I am tempted by the silver. I am tempted by the gold. And I know this in the hearts of all of us. We can say the same, yes. Maybe it's different things for you and I. How we're tempted is different, but it doesn't change the fact that we are tempted and so when you read a passage like this in the Old Testament and you're doing the work of trying to understand the story and the promises at work, I say again and again, watch your heart. I love the way Ed introduced the passage, that we could, just, that we could ask God to help us to hear what God has to, want to say, has to say to us, to listen to what's happening. And I ask for you to be, your heart to be open to what are the sins in the camp of my life? What are the robes, the silver, the gold, the concealing, the hiding, the lying? What are all those things for me? How have I felt those things? It's dangerous to, it's dangerous to be overconfident in yourself and to think you have it all figured out. It, it makes you want that. If you feel that, if you've ever felt that way, it makes you feel like you, you can't do any wrong. You're impervious to fault or error but it's setting you and me up for a complete disaster. Complete disaster. So the main thing I want to focus on as I go back, and I want to step back into the story a little bit. I did this long introduction. Here's Aiken. Here's this story. Feel this story a little bit. I wanted you to feel it. But I want us to step back in the story and try to look at it from God's perspective. 
Because the temptation is to look at it from the perspective of, oh, whoa, this happens to this person and I feel that pain. And part of that's good. That's compassion and love. But I want us to see what's happening because God is telling us a story of teaching his people how to be covenant people. He's teaching his people how to be covenant people and to follow him. And it's a much bigger story. But the first few verses, we immediately see this. And it's the failure of God's people to follow. And God refusing to allow them to be comfortable with sin. God refuses to allow them to be comfortable with sin. He refuses for us to be comfortable with sin. The whole time, as I, this, this week, I've been feeling like I am feeling discomfort about my own sin. About all the ways I, I've messed up and whether it's last week when I was not kind to Christy or when it was like years and years ago when I did this thing or the other. If anything the passage has done for me, it's helped me remember like I'm uncomfortable with not being in the right place with God. And that's exactly what happens because the very first verse, verse 1, if you have your Bible open, it's signaling what this chapter is really about. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regarded in regard to the devoted things, it was instruction God gave them in the last chapter to not touch them. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah took some of them. And so the ang- Lord's anger burned against Israel. It's already telling you what this whole chapter is about, but everything that happens after this verse 2 and on happens without knowledge of verse 1, to be clear. They don't know this happened. Joshua doesn't know this has already happened which is why we, we receive the story that way. And I want us to just be clear about the devoted things. The NIV has devoted, but it might help for you to have in your mind cursed. These are things that were used for pagan worship. Like gold and silver were the materials that would be made to be idols. They, there was no sense of what was this used for or not. And God gave clear instruction, don't have anything to do with it. This will be your undoing. Um, devoted things meant they were devoted to destruction. Not devoted to bring it home and lay it out as like a nice coffee table ornament. That's not what the instruction was. And I want you to hear here, I think it's important for us to hear this and see this at the end of verse 1. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. I want us to hear God's anger. I think it's really important in Scripture when you read that God is angry about something. Because that probably tells you it matters. That probably tells you it matters. There's a really great quote from Matthew Henry that says this, that true Israelites tremble when God is angry. True Israelites tremble when God is angry. You think about the things in the world, the countless evils in the world. I know in my heart, my moral compass, if God is angry about something, I should be angry about it too. God is angry here. And it's coming off this victory at Jericho, like I already said. They sent off all these men from their army thinking they they thought they only needed a few thousand to to conquer this other group nearby. So they sent about 3,000 up. I'm reading from verse 4. But they were rooted by the men of Ai. The men of Ai, just, they conquered them. Men of Ai, they killed 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. This is disastrous. We're supposed to feel these things sometimes when we read the stories There's these ways in which these stories unfold because there's storytelling happening in Scripture. We're supposed to feel, wow, this is terrible. The anguish that happens is the next movement of the passage starting in verse 6. This anguish over this failure. Joshua and the elders ripping their clothes. This, This is terrible. Is God really with us? We just saw this incredible thing. Is God really with us? It's anguish. 
after Joshua is on his face praying to the Lord before the Ark of the Covenant, he says this in verse 7. I'm just bringing us through this to just feel this a little more. And Joshua said, Alas, the sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us in the hands of the Amorites and destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. He wishes they stayed before they crossed. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has routed our enemies? There is complete anguish over this failure. And we should feel that this is really bad. This is really bad. One of the things that is an obstacle for us when we read a passage like this in the Old Testament or in Scripture in general is that sin here is being understood far more communal than it is individual. We're in a culture in Canada, and it's been the case for a long time in the West, that we often understand things through our own individual guilt, our own individual blame, our own individual compliments on a much positive side. The idea, I have accomplished this. I am owed this. This is what I am owed. And then the same is true that, oh, I made this mistake. I merit this kind of consequence. And, you know, there are times and situations when that is completely appropriate and fair and keeps up good integrity. But I think we miss out on how our mistakes or accomplishments affects those around us. And that's the assumption that is built in the fabric of this story, the reality that everything that happened is communal. Yes, there is this complaining, but it's because it affects everyone. And one of the ways I remember this or reflect on this is when I worked as a chaplain in a hospital, one of the things I had an opportunity to do was to work weekly in an addiction recovery program. So every week I would go and build relationships with people going through this program. And you, you hear very similar stories sometimes of people that experience one addiction or the other where they are just getting drawn into, you know, all kinds of pain and hurt it affects every relationship they have, whether it's a close partner, a spouse. It affects their children. It affects their relationship with their parents. That this evil that takes hold in their life will not let them go. And it affects everything. And I, I mentioned that not to say, oh, like if an addict, a community is to blame for the addict. But the community feels the pain of the addict. And even along the way, there is opportunities for responsibility in the sense that you were on this journey, you had this pain, but we won't let you go alone. We will stay with you. We will not let you go. We will hold you accountable. There, there are ways to think that communal response to sin and evil and temptation is so important. It's why we are invited and called to be part of a church, to not be strangers or not to be um, anonymous in a community, but actually to know each other, to know each other's stories, and to walk with each other, to know what each other's strengths are, and to know where each other struggles. This past year has made it difficult to do that. As a new person to the church coming last year, I don't know everyone's stories. I don't know everyone's strengths. I don't know everyone's struggles. But the more we know about each other, the more we trust each other, the more we walk with each other, is the more that we can love each other and lead each other in faith. The shift in this passage happens after the anguish over the failure that God gives instruction. It's not just to stay face down about this terrible thing that's happened. No, we need to do something about it. God's instruction is the same as what he's already said in the book, which is to consecrate and confront. To consecrate and confront. I'm looking at verse 13 on. He consecrate yourselves is what he says, which is the same language he used before they crossed the Jordan. Consecrate yourselves. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. 
And now at the very end of verse 13, he says this, which is really important. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove the devoted things. Verse, you know, this, I mean, God's words here are really clear in the sense that you need to do something about what's happening because otherwise you all will be destroyed. You all will be destroyed. And verse 12 is saying why this matters most. It's not just that you'll be destroyed. My presence will not be with you anymore. At the end of verse 12, he says, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever is among you is devoted to destruction. God's presence is also always critical. It's critical for your life and mine. How am I walking in step with the presence of God? (laughs) Or how far away am I from it? The presence is the source of God's comfort. It's the source of God's power. And even when you're asking the hardest of questions, can you trust to be near to the presence of the Lord? One of the commentators I read this week said this, that nothing should disturb God's people more than the loss of God himself from among them. We in no way or shape want to be a church apart from God. There's no point. We gather together and worship around the word because we believe God is speaking and leading in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our strengths. And he calls us to consecrate and confront the sins in our midst, and that's what he tells the people here. God gives instruction that, they, that Joshua needs to go through every clan, every family, every tribe, and find the devoted things and destroy them with fire, along with anything connected with them. And then Joshua goes through all these steps, and it's almost as if God's leading him. If you look at the way the story unfolds, it's leading him, but you don't, it's not, no one knows where they are, except God is somehow moving the spirit to this moment. No, it is not this family. It's, it's this family. It's not this tribe. It's this tribe. And all the while, remember, Achan is completely silent. He's had every opportunity to own to this mistake, and yet he doesn't come forward. But eventually, it leads Joshua to Achan. One of the things I want to mention right now is there are some hidden graces in this section that we just need to remember. Hidden graces about what God is doing in this story that you might miss. God doesn't let his anger destroy the whole nation. He doesn't let it actually that many people of Israel die. Remember, it's 36. I'm not trying to to lessen life, but you can see in Scripture other times when a lot more people die. He lessens the impact of the failure, and he reveals the way in which they can seek forgiveness by finding the source of the crime. He teaches the way of obedience so that in future tests for God's people in this book, because there are many coming, that they can respond in faith and know what to do And despite this failure, he keeps the door open for hope. He keeps the door open for life. And in this land, the promises associated with the land. Achan comes forward, and after he's been outed, he confesses to what he's done. He confesses to what he's done. And he confesses knowing exactly what he did. He knows exactly what he did. He knows it was wrong, not just to the people, but he did it before God. And the scenario, like I've already said, brings up all these questions of who was involved in this? Who knew this? When Achan saw that beautiful robe, he took it. He'd heard about these robes from Babylon. When he saw the stash of silver and that large bar of gold, he took it. You know, everyone involved was complicit with that, and he himself owned up to that responsibility. I I think about how many people knew, because one of the podcasts I've been reading recently is... um, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. 
It's a very difficult podcast to read personally for me, like just hearing the pain and anguish. It's a very popular uh, church plant that was some years ago, and its leader fell and fell very hard. And part of it is this system that was created of abuse and of defending abuse. And I just think of how many people were complicit in that system. And the reason that it was defended was because people saw good happening. God is actually bringing about good, even though all these terrible things are happening. That does not make the abuse acceptable. Just like this sin, this error is not acceptable. It is a system that must deal honestly and completely before God, just like we should. As a community and as individuals, we must deal with sin, really. And at the end of this, as painful as it is for me to read and perhaps for you, then God commands them to follow through with what he said, that you must destroy everything, everyone, all the animals, all the family members, all the belongings, everything destroyed and burned. And as I read that, it, 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 it's difficult for me. I see this and I think, this is, is this what's coming for me? Is this coming for people that I, that I love and care for? Um, the answer is no. If we really do believe that God is with us, that God loves you, cherishes you, that you find life with him, there's more to the story than what Joshua tells us. But it doesn't mean that the error or failure is any less important. It doesn't mean it's any less important. At the very end of this chapter, everything that transpired is memorialized. And it's very simple. You're meant as a reader, knowing the story of Joshua, to remember the stones in the beginning in chapter 4. The stones of remembrance, remembering what God has done, helping them cross the Jordan. Remembering those stones, but also remembering these stones. The stones that hurt the throw, the fire that burned, remembering the failure, that this is what obedience looks like and what God does in favor, and this is what trouble looks like. The Valley of Achor, Achor means trouble. It's a play on Achan's name. Achor, the Valley of Trouble, because that is where the Lord turned his anger away. And I, you know, there, there's, it's tough sometimes to think about God's anger, but please help me under, hear me when I say that God is at work in the world bringing about a restoration of all that we know. What, God, what makes God angry is that it threatens his people, it threatens his life, it threatens his promise, and that this sin and this error by Achan is exactly what threatens people. This is not just any kind of sin. It is the sin that will destroy them from the inside, and it must have no part of his people, just like we want no part of it. Remember that the severity of the punishment, I'm going to list a few things here just to help us have in our mind. The severity of the punishment actually matched the severity of the sin for God. Achan robs God's house in order to ordain, adorn his own. Achan had the opportunity to repent, but he chose not to, and he was not ignorant. And there's some evidence to say he even had a chance to be really sorry to come forward, and another possibility could have happened. He chose not to. It is the sin that would destroy the people. If you go back just a few chapters, Rahab was the outsider. But what's different in her story is she, she looked at the power of Yahweh and knew that she could be part of nothing else but that. Versus Achan, the Israelite insider, places himself with the Canaanites by his disobedience. Each of their families receives the blessings or curses of that decision. It's important for us to see that God is not fickle. He doesn't just change his mind 
about what he's doing in the world or what he's doing in your life. He doesn't just change his mind. And there's security and certainty we should take from that. He says that sin matters just like he says evil matters. If we want a God of love in the world, we also want a God of justice. We want a God of justice because that means he does not condone, permit, or have any part of the evil in this world. He's bringing it about for good. And I, sometimes we, you know, I find myself, I catch myself sometimes, like, oh, I want to talk about God as a God of justice, and then I'll just try to remove the language of judgment. But God's justice and judgment are synonymous because they're both necessary for him to bring about repentance, to bring about redemption and restoration. And it's like I said at the very beginning, God refuses to allow me and you to be comfortable with evil, to be comfortable with sin. You can probably go to your mind and think, where are the times I've been really lax about this thing or the other? What if I've been really lax and not cared too much about living in step with what God's invited me to? When have I been really lax? Because we oftentimes downplay it and what actually distorts the gift of grace, the fact that God has forgiven us. We're going to end here with forgiveness. Don't get me wrong. Can I just, just look at everyone here and say we're going to end with forgiveness here? But I want us to deal truthfully with the fact that there are many things that separate us from God and the things that we do honestly and truly do impact how we relate to each other. How you relate to your spouse, your family, your kids, parents, the people you know for a long time or the people you've known for just a few years or maybe you just met this morning. Anything active in your heart is going to come out. You can't hide it like you can't bury it in a tent. It's going to come out. So how do you deal with it? Sin is neither is inevitable, it is, but it's not, imper- it's not permanent. So we must confront it. So how do you confront it? That's where I want us to go towards the end here. How do you confront sin in your life? Because you see the patterns in place in this passage of what they were asked to do, and they're helpful for us. They're helpful for us to think, how do I deal with sin, evil in my life, personally, in the relationships around me? Um, And the first thing is to confront the disobedience in yourself. Confront the disobedience in yourself. If you sense something's happening, if the Spirit is not letting you go in this moment, in this morning, there are things you're holding on to, and you think, wow, I can't let go of this. Why is God taking me there? It's because you're being asked to confront it. And then the next thing is to confess it. You you can look in a number of different places in Scripture that God asks us to confess our sins to one another so that community and unity around God's love is possible. And I've just known the times in my life where I've had to confess sin. I wronged you. I was not kind to you. I I, I thought so ill of you, or I I just straight up lied to you. Or I was hiding these things or the other things completely from you, and you knew it the whole time, Lord, and I need to confess it to the Lord, and I need to confess it to my friends closest to me. And it's only when you confront the disobedience in yourself, when you confess the sins in community, that you can receive forgiveness. Anything that we do here in church, whether we explain fully what we're doing when we invite confession, it is because we know we do it before the Lord who's faithful to forgive us. That the cross, as our sign, as we look at it, of Jesus, that God looks upon his son, and he chooses to turn his anger away from us. He looks at Christ, and he sees that sacrifice and that pain, and it really is our pain. It is our guilt, our sin on the cross, and he takes it for us. 
He takes it for us, creating different possibilities of a new story. But that doesn't mean you don't ask the questions. You ask the questions of how seriously do you take the sin in your life? How many things have you really kept secret? And is it really staying there? Can you be honest about how some of these things, the struggles that you have, they don't just stay in your one-on-one relationship with God, but they actually impact your relationships. They actually impact your church relationships. They actually impact your marriage and family. But then there's 1 John 1. And I want to read 1 John 1 for us as just really our reminder of what forgiveness, grace, and confession is all about. But if we walk in the light that he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Small things and big things. Maybe you're not hiding a massive robe, gold and silver at home, but you found yourself gossiping a little more. Or maybe there have been times when we have not all been ourselves over the past year where we have not acted kindly to one another. There could be much more serious things, but I look at all these things and say, these are obstacles for us accepting and embracing these promises of God's grace. And if we can honestly deal with them before the Lord, we can be much better for it. We can be free. The cross represents a proclamation of our freedom before the Lord. He does not see our sin or our guilt, but he sees you as his child. He wants to walk with you, hold your hand, and be with you. We must confront our disobedience, confess sin, and receive forgiveness. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Um, We're going to start to transition to a time of communion, but I want to go back to just thinking about these different moments in the story of Joshua we've already felt. The monuments of these rocks that help them remember the crossing of Jordan and these rocks that remember God's judgment, justice, and how we view sin. And it's interesting when you think about this valley of trouble where all this happened in. It is also the same valley where God opens up a door of hope for you and me. I look at this and think, I, I don't think of other people when I read this passage. I think of myself. I think of how I've wronged people and how I want to seek repentance. And even as I move towards that, I know God is faithful to forgive me. He's reminding me of his hope. Hosea Two says this about this passage, and it is really powerful, I think. And Hosea says, I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of your youth, as in the day that she came out of Egypt. And what is that response? If you read in Hosea, it is seeing and relating to God in united a united marriage covenant, a wife. But I look at this and I say, what does it look like to respond knowing that God's opened up the door of hope? It looks like running to the Father. Saying, God, I messed up. I've been doing all this wrong and I need your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness. And Lord, I know you've seen what's done. I just, but I want to say it again. I want to say again, I am sorry for the things that I've done and I repent. And I want to make good on the promise that you've done. 
And we probably all need to run to the Father. We're going to take communion in a little bit here. But I would just invite, as the music's playing, for you to maybe just have some time of reflection. What do you need to run to the Father for? What do you need to confront? What do you need to confess? But please do it and trust. You're in good hands. (laughs) You're in good hands because God loves you. He's forgiven you. He died for you. This is not a point to push you away from him, but to draw you into him. So let's just use this time to reflect, and then we'll share in this meal together to help us remember what this sacrifice is all about. ask you to take out your elements, but let me pray. Lord, we lift up these prayers to you because we know that you are faithful to forgive us. We have all messed up and fallen short. We all find ourselves in darkness, bound up in evil, and we want no part of it, Lord. So please use these times of worship to draw us out of it, to pull us out of the muck and the mire, and instead, Lord, set us out in freedom. Lord, because we can't do this apart from you. We can't do this apart from one another. You've called us to be together in your will and your purpose. So may your will and purpose be done in us. I say this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.